Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequencies 6145 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19-meter band to Far West Africa. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Amanda Machaka, Tabiso Lohoko and Tami Kuza. In our top stories in Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, Burkina Faso coup leader handed over to government. UN diplomats discuss political situation in Central African Republic and top French economists to deliver the Nelson Mandela annual lecture. In economics, Nigeria's President Muhammadu Buhari takes over the oil ministry and in sports news, Bafana Bafana coach calls up replacements for injured players. But first up the news with Amanda Machaka. Good morning. The leader of a short-lived coup in Burkina Faso, Gilbert Diendere, has been handed over to authorities after seeking refuge in the Vatican Embassy. Diendere, a former spy chief, was at the head of a week-long power grab by Burkina Faso's presidential guard last month, during which the interim president and prime minister were held hostage. He sought sanctuary in the embassy after the transitional government was returned to power by the army. Prime Minister Yakuba Zida says the government provided guarantees to the Vatican Embassy that Yandera's life would be spared. The ICC's prosecutor Fatou Bensouda has rejected accusations that she is a traitor to Africa. Bensouda, a Canadian national, has been denied permission by the African by the Pan-African Parliament to address them on Monday as her office persists in prosecuting Sudanese President Omar al-Bashir for alleged crimes against humanity. She is also demanding to know why South Africa, as a signatory to the Rome Statute, did not arrest al-Bashir when he attended an African African Union summit in Johannesburg in June. Bensuda says she is not bothered by the accusations. It doesn't bother me because I'm not. I'm not a traitor. There are people who are interested in saying that because of the propaganda. They do not want the work of the ICC to be done or to be done fairly. They want me to favor some people and not. And when I took this office, I said I was going to do my work without fear or favor. An Egyptian court has sentenced seven anti-government protesters to death after charging them with acts of violence or terrorism. On Thursday, the court in the capital, Cairo, handed down the execution sentences to seven of the Muslim Brotherhood members. The defendants were charged with inciting violence in the Kankan district during anti-government protests. In a separate development, a military court in Alexandria sentenced six anti-government protesters to jail terms ranging from three to ten years over their alleged involvement in the torching of a police outpost in the city. Among the defendants were two juveniles who received three-year jail terms each. 
Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has accused the majority of United Nations member states of doing absolutely nothing to counter Iran's threat to destroy Israel. He called on world powers to do everything possible to ensure that Iran sticks to the recently agreed deal limiting its nuclear program. Netanyahu also says he's willing to meet Palestinian negotiators at any time without preconditions for fresh peace talks. Matthew Wells reports. Prime Minister Netanyahu spent the majority of his speech reiterating and building on his criticism of Iran and what he called its expanding global terror network, which he said would only grow stronger following the nuclear deal. The deal amounted to rewarding Iran's bad behaviour, which would only get worse, he said. History, he added, showed that the best intentions often produce the worst outcomes, and Iran's anti-Israel rhetoric to destroy the Jewish state had not been tempered by the nuclear deal. And finally, American President Barack Obama has repeated his call for new gun control measures following the college shooting in Oregon, which claimed the lives of 10 people, including the 26-year-old gunman. Expressing his frustration that such incidents have become a routine in the U.S., Obama says the laws that eliminate mass shootings need to be reviewed and implemented with great urgency. Channel Africa News. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thank you, Amanda. It is 8.05 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on this Friday, October the 2nd, the 275th day of 2015, with 90 days left in the year. We're on the frequency double... 6145 kilohertz on the 41 meter band to southern Africa and on 15255 kilohertz on the 19 meter band to far west Africa. Reports from Burundi say the leader of a short-lived coup in Burkina Faso, General Gilbert Diandere, was handed over to authorities yesterday after seeking refuge in the Vatican embassy. Diandere had sought sanctuary in the embassy in the recent days after the transitional government tasked with guiding Burkina Faso to elections this month was returned to power amid international pressure and popular protest. Channel Africa's Ntlantla Matlangu has more. General Gilbert Diendere earlier this week called on his followers in the elite presidential guard to put down their arms. He said he was willing to surrender to authorities and would like the people of Burkina Faso to find a solution to the crisis through dialogue and all parties should talk to find an inclusive solution for the future of the country. The presidential guard arrested interim president Michael Kafando and interim prime minister Yakuba Isaac Ziba on the 16th of September. Diendere later took power but stepped down after pressure from the West African regional bloc Kikowas, Burkina Faso's military and demonstrating citizens. The transitional government was reinstalled on the 23rd of September. Under the peace deal, the presidential guard was supposed to disarm but they refused and on Tuesday the army used force to take over all the places occupied by the presidential guard. The government says its forces are assessing the victims of its assault. It has asked its citizens to be tolerant towards former presidential guard soldiers and called for the strengthening of reconciliation and national unity. Reporting for Channel Africa, I'm Tlantla Matlangu in Johannesburg.
The Minova rape trial in the Democratic Republic of Congo was a huge disappointment to victims and urgent reform is needed to ensure justice can one day be served. That's according to a just-released report by Human Rights Watch, which shows that despite massive international support and attention, the so-called Minova rape trial failed to deliver justice for either the victims or the accused. A trial dealt with one of the worst incidents of mass rape ever in the Democratic Republic of Congo, but although 39 soldiers stood trial, only two low-ranking soldiers were convicted. For more on this, Jose Khodingake spoke to Geraldine Matioli Zeltner, International Justice Advocacy Director at Human Rights Watch. So what happened really is very complicated to establish. And the sad thing is that the trial that followed the events also was not able to exactly establish the truth of what happened in Minova in 2012. But what we know is that after Goma fell to a rebel group called the M23, Congolese army troops were ordered by the commander of land forces to retreat towards the little town of Minova to reorganize and plan their next steps in that war. What we also know through Human Rights Watch research, but also research conducted by other local NGOs and by the UN, is that on the way to Minova and in Minova and around villages, during 10 days, the Congolese soldiers, as you just said, looted, raped, destroyed houses, destroyed shops. They basically launched into a frenzy of violence for 10 days. Who exactly was it? Who was there is difficult to establish. The UN was able to document that a number of battalions were in Minova at the time. Some soldiers were not in their battalions, others were. It was very difficult to establish exactly who was responsible for the crimes in Minova. But now, what made these soldiers commit this orgy of rape on the local women of Minova and also apparently the neighboring villages in Eastern Congo? Can it be established that commanders order subordinates to go and get women? So, no, as far as I can tell from our research on the Minova trial, no evidence came out that the soldiers were ordered to rape. But that's not the only question, I would say. It remains the matter that the soldiers raped. I think that's well established. The hospitals, the health centers in the the area reported a peak, an increase of victims of sexual violence coming to get treated. So the fact that the crimes happened is well established. The fact that it was committed by Congolese army troops is also well established because all the women were able to say they spoke Lingala, they had a a Congolese army uniform, so that's not put into question. It does seem that nothing was done, however, to prevent the crimes or to stop them or then even to punish them. So this is what poses the question of the responsibility of the commanders who were in Minova, who knew very well that all these crimes were happening because there were shots and, you know, cries and everything you can imagine. So they knew that the crimes were being committed and nothing was done to prevent, stop, or even to punish the crimes afterwards. It was only under enormous international pressure that finally Kinshasa sent the prosecutor more than six months after crimes happened to investigate and to bring some people to justice. But before that, there was no willingness to punish the crimes. 
Now, is it possible that the number of cases might have been more than what is known because maybe some victims feared to come forward, you know, fearing that their communities and even their husbands might reject them? Yes, I think that's a very good question. It's difficult to establish how many women and girls were raped in Minova. Human Rights Watch, through our research, we were able to confirm a minimum of 76 cases. The Human Rights Office of the UN confirmed 135 cases. But I think both organizations believe that there could have been a lot more women raped, but who didn't want to come forward, to step forward, and to to say what happened to them. Because indeed, rape brings a lot of stigma in Congo. It happens that women are abandoned afterwards by their husbands, are rejected by the communities, and therefore would rather keep this crime secret. Okay, when prosecutors began assembling this case, this case that became known throughout the world as the Minova trial, it was heralded as the largest rape tribunal in the country's history and also as a defining chapter in the creation of a viable legal system in Eastern Congo. The Congolese army's senior prosecutor apparently promised that all the big fish will be arrested and prosecuted. So why did it turn into such a parody of justice? I mean, 12 senior officers suspended over the rapes were never brought to trial. Apparently, of the 39 Congolese soldiers who did eventually appear in court, only two junior soldiers were convicted of rape. What happened there to justice? There were a lot of problems in these cases that led to this very disappointing verdict. According to our research, which is based on dozens of interviews with people who were close to the trial or involved in the investigation and the trial and on court documents as well, so according to our research, we saw, I would say, three big problems in this case. First, the quality of the prosecution file was very low. Everybody said there was no evidence brought at trial. And this may in part be led to a lack of expertise. And I don't mean this in any kind of diminishing way for the Congolese justice system, which has a lot of really good judges and prosecutors. It's just you have to see this was a particularly difficult crime scene to investigate. As we discussed, thousands of soldiers dispersed on Minova, thousands of victims. The victims were not able to identify the direct perpetrators, so you had to establish this link between the commanders and what happened, this mode of liability of common responsibility. This is all very complicated. This is stuff that's happening at international tribunals maybe, but local prosecutors and investigators, they didn't know where to start. That was Geraldine Mattioli Zeltner from Human Rights Watch on the line from The Hague in the Netherlands speaking to Jose Rodingake. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. My name is Sipa Hot Sticks Mabuse, a South African musician and an African artist for that matter. You are listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Pambi. My name is Yvonne Chaka Chaka from South Africa, but Africa is my home. You're listening to Channel Africa. The voice of the African Renaissance. My name is Habida, an African artist from Kenya. 
and you're listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai. It's 8.15 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on the frequency 6145 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19-meter band to Far West Africa. After two and a half years of violent conflict that has left thousands dead and millions displaced, the most tenuous months for the Central African Republic may very well lie ahead. That was the message of participants at a high-level meeting on the situation in the country known as the Central African Republic, which took place yesterday at UN headquarters in New York. The meeting happened as the country prepares for critical elections due to take place later this month. UN Radio's Veronica Reeves has more. The Central African Republic has been racked by violence between Muslim and Christian militias, leaving thousands dead and about a quarter of the country's 4.6 million people displaced. The violence has continued right up through this past week with more than 30 people killed and 100 more wounded in violent clashes in the country's capital, Bangui. Speaking at Thursday's high-level event on the situation, UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon said the recent violence highlighted the vital need for the continued engagement of the international community. As developments over the last days have demonstrated the importance of international support and the need to bridge religious and communal divisions and find the common ground has never been more critical. Mr. Bond went on to say that stabilizing the country would take long-term concerted effort. Major challenges remain beyond the immediate security concerns rebuilding, reconciling, and reforming a country that has been exposed to years of violent crises takes time, and the humanitarian needs remain significant. Catherine Samba Panza is the country's transitional head of state. She had been slated to address the meeting in person, but had to return to CAR following the recent violence. Speaking via video conference through an interpreter, Ms. Samba Panza said she was committed to ensuring whoever was elected to run CAR would inherit a functional government. The will of the transition government is to give the new authorities that have come out of the election a country that can be governed in, which is endowed with the necessary tools. The government that has emerged from the coming elections must be operational in the security area. This must be its top priority. Ms. Samba Panza thanked international partners for their instrumental role in the transition process and then directly appealed to them to remain steadfast in their support in the critical months ahead. Your duty now is to stand by us, and I am sure you will be committed from today on to carry the flame of support to the present authorities of the transition. The transitional president, Ms. Samba Panza, speaking through an interpreter in Bangui as she tries to quell the latest violence in the CAR. Veronica Reeves, United Nations. 
The Malian government and military opposition movements must both deliver on their promises to forge ahead with a peace deal, the Deputy Secretary-General said at a UN meeting on Thursday. A coup d'etat in the West African country in early 2012 continues to breed instability and violence. Mali's foreign minister said the country had already come a long way thanks to the peace agreement signed in June. Daniel Dickinson reports. The Deputy Secretary-General Jan Eliasson said that the main rebel coalition in northern Mali, known as the CMA, together with the pro-government militia of the Algiers platform, had shown commitment to the peace process, but more was needed. Sporadic violations of the ceasefire had damaged confidence and caused delays, he said, and all sides needed to demonstrate more willing. This ministerial meeting must send a strong message to the signatory parties, particularly to the political military movements. They must renounce all actions which violate the agreement and the ceasefire. It is equally important that the government carries out the institutional reforms envisaged in the agreement. Representing the Malian president, Foreign Minister Abdullahi Diop said it was important to maintain momentum. Speaking through an interpreter, he said there would be zero tolerance for any further outbreaks of violence, including by militias supporting the government. Previously, things that they may have done may have been overlooked, a blind eye may have been turned because of the broader crisis situation. But now that we're working to restore peace, the president is determined to let nobody overstep the bounds of the peace accord, including the members of the Algiers platform. The meeting heard that the road to peace would remain challenging for all parties and international support would be needed in the short and long term. Daniel Dickinson, United Nations. South Sudan is one of the countries in the Horn of Africa that, despite the conflict, is still receiving migrants from neighboring countries and beyond. The aspect of intra-regional migration has been discussed in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. Channel Africa's Koleta Wanjohi has more. In 2014, 625,000 people asked for asylum in the European Union, according to recent figures from Eurostat. This is an increase of 44% in comparison to 2013. These numbers of people striving to cross to Europe, majorly through dangerous means like the Mediterranean Sea and others by walking through border points, has raised concern internationally, forcing even European countries into emergency meetings. However, the international debate on migration seems to have forgotten another form of migration that is as common as that of international migration. This is that of intra-regional migration. More migrants in the Horn of Africa, for instance, travel to countries in the Horn more than they do or migrate to Europe, Middle East and North America. Hannah Sadik is the resident representative of Life and Peace Institute in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. She is leading a panel of discussion on the need for intra-regional migration to be discussed more. Intra-regional migration links with the migration flows that go to Europe right now. So the better we understand intra-regional migration, because sometimes a lot of these people are in transit, you know, they may take them several years to get to Europe, and they then stay in the region. If there are ways in that we can encourage people to actually stay and not cross, um, that's very, very important. Of course, there are some that are refugee and asylum seekers, and for that, the European Union and the international community have to take a shared responsibility. It's not just in the, us in the region, it's a shared responsibility, um, and they deserve international protection, um, as we have enshrined in, uh, in our various conventions around refugees. The case study that the Institute has looked at to address the issue of intra-regional migration is South Sudan.
This is a country that has faced internal conflict for close to two years now and with more than half a million refugees having fled to neighboring countries. But interestingly, it is still attracting labor migrants from other countries. The ambassador of South Sudan to Ethiopia, Akwel Bona Malwal, says that the insatiable demand for skilled labor in this world's youngest nation is forcing more migrants to go to the main cities in South Sudan and get involved, especially in construction projects. Because some of them actually had established businesses before the conflict, but then they closed down, then thought that uh, the conflict was going to be in the cities. But when it was not in the cities, because it's moved away from Juba and from uh, when uh, up north to the three uh, states, so the other state, the other seven states were functioning normally, and they realized that you know they can come back and uh, so that's the the interesting uh, phenomenon that people don't talk about that actually. Ambassador Malwal, however, says that the labor migrants in South Sudan operate without protection from the law. South Sudan is yet to enact a labor and investment law. You know, during the crisis also there are people who took advantage of the, uh, the uh, foreign investors who have established themselves and, uh, and some people came and chased them away from their businesses and, and there is no law to protect them. They didn't have a recourse. And they might, and up to now they they can come back and they will not have a recourse. They might open a police case and go to a court. It's, it's the judge who will now trying to uh, hopefully uh, help them out and uh, rule on who owns this business and who doesn't own the business. But if there was an investment law, those things will be easier. Migration experts advise that the countries in the Horn of Africa should set up policies to prevent the escalation of dangers of migration since if current migration trends persist, new dynamics may emerge, hence new challenges. Koleta Anjoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital. The United Nations Special Envoy on Youth has challenged governments around the world to appoint the youth into office. Ahmed Alendawi believes the world's toughest problems can be solved by the largest generation of youth the world has ever known. Dashan Moodley sat down with the Secretary General's Youth Ambassador in New York to find out how South African youth can tackle its triple challenge of poverty, inequality and unemployment. Actually, I remember when I was appointed, in the press release, it came like I was uh, appointed to respond to the needs of 1.8 billion young persons. Seriously, like no pressure, huh? At just 31 years of age, Ahmed Alendawi is pushing for governments to recognize maturity over age when appointing the next leadership. Half the world's population is under the age of 25, and yet only 2% of parliamentarians are under 30. Because the easiest is to blame youth. Keep blaming them. They study the wrong things, they are troublemakers, they want to become ministers and bosses and managers, but they will never tell you if you are not offering them anything to make it acceptable. Then we have to establish a mechanism for that. Because you can't label uh, 1.8 billion as a problem, right? They become a problem if you do so. And for Alendawi, it's precisely this blame game that's holding back Africa's development. The UN's latest attempt to improve life on the planet is captured in its 17 sustainable development goals. They're summarized into five Ps, people, planet, prosperity, peace and partnership. Governments, they think it's all about economic growth, it's about putting the laws in place. And if you go to private sector, they will start blaming the education experts. Like, 
We have jobs, but we can't find young people who are qualified for these jobs. If you go to education expert, they will tell you it's all about education. We get to fix the education system. If you go to bankers, they will tell you no, it's all about access to credit. Uh, and uh, different parties have different solutions for this. And I think that's exactly where the UN uh, comes. We're trying to offer that multi-stakeholder partnerships and engagement uh, and discussion around how to solve youth unemployment. Alindawi has widely traveled through Africa to engage with presidents and royalty. He wants them to recognize that Africa's 200 million young people are the biggest game changers for their countries. You, you still need to invest more in the agricultural sector. There are plenty of uh, areas where you could do more energy, could create jobs, infrastructure create jobs, agriculture create jobs. You need to create the foundation or the ecosystem that could could attract these investments and create jobs for young people. That was the UN's Secretary General's Special Envoy on Youth, Ahmed Alendawi. I'm Darshan Mudli at the United Nations Headquarters in New York. Global artists to support Radio Everyone, a global pop-up radio station to tell everyone about the global goals. It's time to change the world. Seven-day pop-up, a global radio station streaming online with the broadcaster partners in over 60 countries, producing and hosting content on their platforms across the week. Harnessing the world's most accessible medium, Radio Everyone will bring together stations of all sizes across the world, including broadcasters in Africa, Europe, the USA, India, and with huge support from major broadcasters already, Radio Everyone is calling for more involvement from radio stations around the world in order to help reach the campaign's ambitious target of telling 7 billion people in seven days about the goals. This is Chris from Coldplay. I'm Cody Simpson. This is Lisa astronaut Samantha Christopher. This is Liam Neeson. I'm the actress Michelle Yeoh. This is Gilbert Duchu. Please can we just have one minute of your time? A minute of your time. By joining together and saying these credible goals, let's be serious about them, let's get involved. That very privileged perspective of being able to look down on our planet from space really made me think of the global goals for sustainable development. You're listening to Radio Arrow. We will live in a world where our industries and our best innovations are not just used to make money, but to make all our lives better. For more information, go to Global Goals. This is Radio Everyone. Seven-day pop-up radio station you can find on globalgoals.org. Globalgoals.org. Let's get to work. The station for the UN's global goals. Let's make it happen. Help us tell everyone. Tell everyone. Please help us tell everyone. You are listening to Radio Everyone. Radio Everyone. Help us tell everyone. Tell everyone. Radio Everyone. Thank you so much. It's 8.30 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Our headlines up next with Amanda Machaka.
Thank you, Lulu. Good morning. The leader of a short-lived coup in Burkina Faso, Gilbert Diendere, is handed over to authorities. ICC prosecutor Fato Bensouda rejects accusations that she is a traitor to Africa. And Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu accuses the majority of United Nations member states of doing absolutely nothing to counter Iran's threat to destroy Israel. Details at the top of the hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thank you, Amanda. A South African king has been sentenced to 12 years in prison for a series of charges including kidnapping, assault and arson. King Buele Kaya Dalingebo of the Abatembu ethnic group was jailed by the Supreme Court of Appeals. The king had approached the court to overturn a 2009 court ruling on the matter, which had sentenced him to 15 years. The charges relate to a dispute he had with some of his subjects more than two decades ago. Session Naidu reports. After having been out on bail for seven years, the Abatembu king will have to spend the next 12 years of his life behind bars. King Buyelekaya Dalinyebo had approached the Supreme Court of Appeals to appeal his conviction from 2009 for a string of offences including kidnapping, arson and defeating the ends of justice. Although Dalinyebo was convicted in 2009, the crimes date back to 1995 and 1996 on his farm near Mtata. The king's spokesperson, Mfudo Bovulengwe, says they're disappointed that the king lost his appeal. Bovulengwe believes that the judgment is politically motivated. I'm disappointed because I, I believe this is politically more than what it was. Because it happened in 1997, more than 10 years back, and it was disappeared. The time it was, it was supporting the ruling, but the case was disappeared. After it joined DA, and then the case came up. However, the Democratic Alliance has distanced itself from the king, saying he is no longer affiliated to the party. DA spokesperson Rifilwe Nseke says Dalinyebo joined the DA on a one-year contract which has since lapsed. The king joined the DA to have a membership for one year. That particular membership has since lapsed. In the same breath, I will explain that the Democratic Alliance has a constitution that says We abide by the rule of law. If somebody is convicted and found guilty in a court of law of committing a criminal offense, his membership is automatically terminated. Dalinyebo was a convicted criminal when he joined the DA. Nseke has blamed this on a background check which might not have been done allowing him to join the party. When we sign up members, they are signed up from different aspects. When people go door to door, etc., etc., We don't normally run a background check on people to become members. So that could have been one of those oversights where nobody picked up that he'd actually had various crimes that he had committed in the past. The ANC in the Eastern Cape says it will go through the ruling before giving a detailed comment. Provincial ANC spokesperson Oscar Mabuyane says his organization respects the rule of law and constitution of the country that guarantees human rights protection to everyone. 
We've just received uh, the news. Indeed, these are sad news to the Abatembo kingdom. King is the leader of a nation. Uh, it's not an easy thing for all of us. The role that is being played by the traditional leadership in social cohesion is a quite important one. We can comprehensively make a informed comment when we have seen the judgment. UDM leader Bantu Holomisa says that the Abatembu clan and the Abadlomo house in the Eastern Cape will now have to sit down and decide on a way forward. The onus now is on the Tembu and in particular the Lomo house to take a decision as to or come up with suggestions on a way forward because the sentencing of uh, King Wielekaya Daniya is a serious matter given his position. At this point in time, it has to go that route. It is understood that the king is required to report to prison within 48 hours of the judgment. Attempts to get comments from the Department of Justice were to no avail. Sasha Naidu, Johannesburg. Following increased cases of measles and rubella, cases in Zimbabwe, the country is stepping up efforts to contain the outbreaks. A week-long national vaccination campaign is meant to immunize children aged between 9 months and 15 years. In 2014, the Health Ministry says more than a 1,000 cases of rubella were recorded. Simon Muchema reports from Harare. The cry of baby at Concession Hospital, 60 kilometers north of the Zimbabwean capital, Harare, Thursday, marked the national immunization campaign against measles and rubella. Zimbabwe is targeting children aged between 9 months and 15 years old during the current measles and rubella vaccination campaign. While this measles is well known in Zimbabwe, little is known about rubella virus. Rubella also known as German measles, is an infectious disease caused by the rubella virus. The virus passes from person to person via droplets in the air expelled. When infected, people cough or sneeze. The virus may also be present in the urine, feces, and on the skin. The hallmark symptoms of rubella are an elevated body temperature and a pink rash. Acting Health Ministry Permanent Secretary Dr. Gibson Sbanda noted the country was battling with measles and rubella outbreak. We still have a problem with rubella and through our sentinel surveillance we recorded over a thousand cases of rubella uh, in 2014. So rubella is a significant public health problem uh, in Zimbabwe. And this is why, as a country, we made the decision to ensure that our children are vaccinated against uh, uh, rubella. Of course, we have been carrying out vitamin A supplementation uh, over the past. Those of you who have followed programs of the Minister of Health and Child Care will be aware of some of these uh, programs. So we will also be doing vitamin A supplementation as part of this MR vaccine introduction. However, in the past year, Zimbabwe experienced declining routine immunization coverage attributed to social economic challenges which resulted in exodus of health workers. Health facilities closed and shortages of electricity impacted on cold chain functionality, lack of fuel and vehicles challenging the outbreak services, among other factors, while other progress 
has been made in addressing some outbreaks in the country, measles and rubella remain a challenge. Concession Hospital Resident Officer Dr. Concilia Magadza explained. Rubella, rubella, this is our first time in Zimbabwe uh, vaccinating against uh, rubella. Uh, in the public, uh, yeah, is um, in the public sector. This NID is including a new vaccine, which is a combination of measles and rubella. So, regardless of the um, immunization status of the child, they are giving the measles rubella vaccination in this campaign. And then, uh, because this is uh, launching um, measles rubella combination, otherwise, previously we were just giving just uh, measles at nine months. Meanwhile, Channel Africa caught up with several school children that took part. In the national vaccination campaign due to adequate publicity. Uh, we told at school about this vaccination and then um, at first I was afraid and then today I just decided to come. Elizabeth, come on. Come on. Yeah. Why did you come here? I wanted to prevent myself from rubella. Yeah. What were you told about rubella? Oh, it was it's a disease when you have it. Maybe you can bear children who are bar- you can become barren or you can bear children who are crippled. However, for the national vaccination campaign to be successful, it was due to funding from UNICEF. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. Let's go back in time to today in 2001. Seeking the full backing of its 18 NATO allies, the United States provides clear and compelling evidence of Osama bin Laden's involvement in the September 11 attacks. In the meantime, investigators looking into the September 11 attacks may have information that represents the clearest evidence to date tying Saudi dissident Osama bin Laden to the assault. Reports say that interrogations of bin Laden's extended family in Saudi Arabia have indicated that he telephoned his mother in Syria the day before the attacks to cancel a meeting with her. The New York Times reports that bin Laden is alleged to have told her that something big was imminent and that would end their communications for a long time. His mother is reported to have taken the call from her son while vacationing in the Syrian capital, Damascus, where they met on several occasions in the past. This lead is yet to be fully confirmed. And that clip courtesy of the SABC archives. We, the people of South Africa, feel fulfilled that humanity has taken us back into its bosom. The world has seen how deeply he believes in freedom, human dignity, and the right of the individual to fulfill his or her dream. I think for the rest of the world, his legacy will be the symbolism of his own character, of his extraordinary gift for forgiveness and reconciliation. Nelson Mandela is a living embodiment of the highest values of the United Nations. Nelson Mandela, South Africa's giant in history. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Visiting French academic professor Thomas Piketty says South Africa will need to 
the introduction of a minimum wage to address inequality. The Paris University economics professor is confident that the country will follow other emerging countries with a minimum wage. According to Piketty, direct distribution of wealth is needed to address extreme inequality in South Africa. He was addressing the media at the Nelson Mandela Foundation in Johannesburg ahead of the 13th annual Nelson Mandela Lecture on Saturday. Tsepo Mungwai reports. Piketty says it's sad that the 60% share of the South Africa's income only goes to the top 10 of the population. He says the country's gap between the rich and the poor is the largest out of all the countries that he had studied. He's also confident that the introduction of a minimum wage in South Africa will happen to reduce inequality. Uh, there's a lot of discussion today about creating a national minimum wage, which uh, in my view is extremely important, uh, and, and, and South Africa should uh, have a national minimum wage, uh, which is something that you have not only in rich countries, but also in emerging countries like uh, Brazil, and that have played a very big role under Lula in order to reduce inequality in Brazil. Um, um, and, and I think South Africa should also uh, move uh, in, this, uh, in this direction. According to the writer of Capital in the 21st Century, the ownership of wealth in South Africa is still clouded in secrecy. He's called for more transparency when it comes to property ownership. Uh, I think more uh, transparency uh, in terms of income and wealth inequality is also important. It's, it's very difficult to, to say much about how uh, the concentration of property and wealth has changed in South Africa uh, since the end of apartheid because there is basically no access to proper data. So the, in particular there's no access to uh, estate tax data, so there's a lot of discussion about estate tax reform today in South Africa, which is very interesting. But Piketty says black economic empowerment as a tool to redistribute wealth has failed due to its dependence on market forces. It's clear that the, the, if you have BEE-type policies that are solely based on, on voluntary market transaction at market prices, this puts very strong limit on what you can do in terms of, uh, of reducing the concentration of, of wealth. According to Piketty, the country cannot just rely on market forces to deliver equality. He says policies have an important role to play in wealth distribution through progressive taxation. Chairperson of the Nelson Mandela Foundation, Professor Njabulo Ndebele, says Piketty was a perfect choice to speak at this year's Nelson Mandela Lecture, given his strong writing that combines both scholarly and public discourses. Someone who combines deep research and analysis with robust engagement in both theory and policy. Most importantly for us, he is making vital contributions in addressing the key questions. How can we overturn oppressive patterns of poverty and inequality that are deeply embedded in our historical experience? And how can we do things uh, differently? Piketty will address the 13th Nelson Mandela Lecture on Saturday at the University of Johannesburg's Soweto campus. I am Tepo Mungwai in Johannesburg. A world that remains beset by so much human suffering, poverty and deprivation. It is in your hands to make of our world a better one for all.
Make every day a Mandela day. It is in your hands to make a difference. It's 8.46 Central African time and our economics update up next with Tabiso Lehoku. Thanks, Lulu. Nigeria's President Muhammadu Buhari is to take personal charge of the country's crucial oil portfolio. Reports from New York, where Buhari has been attending the United Nations General Assembly, quoted him as saying he would be Minister of Petroleum Resources, with a junior minister taking charge of day-to-day affairs in the sector. Buhari took office in May after a landmark election victory against Goodluck Jonathan, the first time an opposition candidate has unseated an incumbent in the country's history. The International Monetary Fund has suspended loans to Malawi for failing to cut its wage bill and improve revenue collection, making it less likely Western donors will resume budgetary aid. This is the second time the IMF has suspended the program within a period of three years, and Musa reports. It was halted in 2012 when the Malawi government failed to devalue its currency, the Kwacha, and reform public financial management. Finance Minister Goodall Gondwe says things are now out of hand because this completely jeopardizes their chances of getting back budget support suspended under the Joyce Banda administration. Gondwe says the Treasury was already working on revising the $1.5 billion budget, which was passed in July this year. The Helen Suzman Foundation in South Africa has asked public protector Tuli Madonsela to probe power utility Eskom, the Chancellor House and the ruling African National Congress following revelations about improper payments by Japanese company Hitachi. Dumelo Zulu reports. The UN Security and Exchange Commission earlier charged Hitachi for inaccurately recorded improper payments made to Chancellor House in relation to contracts at Eskom. The commission also alleged that Hitachi sold a 25% interest to Chancellor House, the ANC's investment arm, in order to lend the lucrative contracts at ESCOM's Midupi and Kusilio Power Station. Lesotho has been criticized for being a destination where it's easy for foreigners to run unlicensed tourism businesses. This is the concern of the CEO of Lesotho Tourism Development Corporation, Mpapaile. Matutu. Matutu also implored the youth to take up training in tourism to enhance the growth of the industry in the country. He's indicated there are very few tour operators who are able to manage guided tours for tourists coming into Lesotho. Angola's central bank is planning to further devalue the Kwanzaa this year and will continue a managed currency slide next year. The Kwanzaa was trading officially at around 135 against the US dollar, but changed hands at around 250 per dollar on the black market. Angola's central bank devalued the Kwanzaa by about 4% and tightened the dollar liquidity in September, after a devaluation of 6% in June. The US dollar trades at 13.82 in South Africa, 10.41 in Botswana, 11.85 in Zambia. 0.65 to the British pound, 0.89 to the euro. Gold won $112, $1.1 to the US 
Platinum nine zero zero dollars a ounce. Brand crude oil four eight dollars one two cents a barrel. Channel Africa's economic update. Thank you, Tabiso. Tamikulza, it's the weekend. What's the what's the schedule for this weekend? What time is the rugby match, and uh, what are we hoping to to achieve there? <laughs> you see, uh, South Africans are sitting on the knife edge this weekend. Mm. Half past three this afternoon, uh, in cricket, South Africa will take on um, India. Mm-hmm. Now that one is going to happen for the whole of uh, October. Mm-hmm. Uh, come Saturday, 17.45, that is quarter to 6 p.m. Central African time. Scotland. Scotland against uh, the Springboks. So we'll take it up on Monday. Edition. It's a bumper weekend. Yeah. Give us an update. SABC brings to you Rugby World Cup 2015. Live on SABC2 and SABC radio stations. Let's do this. Thanks for joining us. I'm Tamik Uza. Nigeria climbed one spot to 52nd in the latest FIFA rankings published on Thursday in Zurich. However, the Super Eagles of Nigeria retained the 10th position in the African continent. Algeria, Ivory Coast, Ghana, Tunisia and Senegal are the best five teams in Africa in that order. The Super Eagles' next opponents, Democratic Republic of Congo and Cameroon, are ranked 60th and 48th respectively, while potential World Cup qualifiers Swaziland and Djibouti occupy 135 and 206 positions respectively. Argentina continued to top the ranking following Germany, Belgium, Portugal and Colombia. The next 12 rankings will be published by the official website of FIFA on the 5th of November 2015. And Rugby Wales took a big step towards the Rugby World Cup quarterfinals by digging deep to hold off Fiji by 23 points to 13 in a breathless pull a clash in Cardiff on Thursday afternoon. SAPC's Craig Shalva reports. France ran out 41-18 winners over Canada in their Pool D game at Milton Keynes last night. The scoreline makes it sound like an easy victory for France, but it was far from that. The French led just 24-12 at half-time, three tries to two, but only managed to cross for their fourth try 66 minutes into the contest. In the earlier game, Wales had to dig deep for their victory against Fiji in the Pool A game in Cardiff. They didn't get their four-try bonus point they were searching for, as Fiji put in a mammoth performance but once again fell just short. And now in cricket, South African protests will be out to start their tour of India on a positive note in the opening T20 International against India starting on Friday. Natli Chamanos looks ahead. Today will mark the start of the international tour that South Africa have of India. It's a long one. They're there for 72 days and it all includes three T20s, five ODIs and four test matches still to come and will eventually finish in the early weeks of December. South Africa, though, have started off the tour with a warm-up match earlier on in the week in Delhi. In the end, South Africa couldn't uh, defend 189, but there's still a lot of positives from the warm-up match with a lot of their batsmen getting time out in the middle and all their bowlers getting a chance ahead of the 
the first T20 which starts today in Dharmasala. Ahead of the game, the captain, Faf Duplessis, did say that it is a little damp underneath with regards to the wicket, but he's hoping that the bit of sun that will go, come back down on the wicket will change things slightly and make it good in terms of scoring runs. He does say also that this pitch is one of the quickest that there is in India and he feels it's a good way to start off their campaign. The match starts at half past three South African time. And now in tennis, Novak Djokovic and Rafael Nadal arrived in Bangkok on Thursday afternoon to prepare for the lucrative exhibition match scheduled for Friday. Djokovic is due to play in the tournament in Beijing and Shanghai in China and is already looking forward to the season's finale. We all want to finish the season in the best possible way. Uh, we have the round-robin format that is uh, unique. No other tournament is round-robin format, so it's a bit different, but it's very intense because you always play against the top player. And finally, in golf, playing as a professional for the first time, World Cup stars Paul Duane and Jamie Mullen share the lead to the Alfred Dunhill Links Championship in Scotland. The two have shot rounds of 64 for 8 under par and share top spot with Christopher Brobeck. Niktai reports. Dunn made the headlines leading the Open into the final round at St Andrews in the summer. He turned pro like many of his Walker Cup teammates and a spectacular start to his career includes a hole-in-one at the 15th at Kings Barnes, a shot which galvanised his opening round. Mullen was the leading point scorer as Great Britain and Ireland won the big amateur team event. He's confident but modest and feels he's here to learn the ropes. An eagle too helped him also at Kings Barnes. And the two move on to St Andrews for day two, where Broberg has already shot a 64. It's going to be a week of low scoring. Even at Carnoustie, Martin Keimer and Graham McDowell are among the best after 68. That's the end of our sport. Stay tuned to Channel Africa and back to Lulu Gabu. SABC brings to you Rugby World Cup 2015, live on SABC2 and SABC radio stations. Let's do this. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top story for an Africa rise and shine at this hour, Burkina Faso coup leader handed over to government, UN diplomats discuss political situation in Central African Republic, and top French economists to deliver the Nelson Mandela annual lecture. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today and for the week. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Pumutora Magaza, technical producer Charles Moyo, and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info at channelafrica.co.za or tweet us at Africa. Taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa is a song titled Tell Everybody featuring some of South Africa's biggest acts, some of Africa's rather, biggest acts centered on the next set of developmental goals for the planet. Have a good weekend.